Welcome to Gesundheit with Jacobus, Health Talk Radio, integrating allopathic and all-natural medicine one show at a time. Here is your host, Jacobus Hollowine. Uh, that's correct. Good morning, everybody. Happy St. Patrick's Day to you. For those of you especially who are celebrating that, the party from Ireland. And uh, for those of you who are going to Butte, I hope you drive safely. I know Butte is going to be the, the Mecca today. I shouldn't call it Mecca for the Irish, but uh, that's kind of what it is going to be. Over here in the Bozeman area, we think we have the pub run. I think that is today. Run to the pub. And uh, or is that tomorrow? No, it is usually on St. Patrick's Day. So get ready for that. Uh, that probably is going on right now as we speak about 8 o'clock, 7.30 it started. I thank you all for tuning in today to Gesundheit with Jacobus. I am your host, Jacobus Holloway. I have a feeling you will enjoy today's program because it is such a personal story uh, by my guest, Alan Bell, and his book, Poisoned. Now, Alan told me that he just could not be here at 7 o'clock his time. He's down in California. He is still suffering from all the environmental toxins that he had been exposed to. His immune system is still not 100%. And he said, I would feel better if I can just do two hours, give me a little bit extra sleep, and then I'll talk to you at 8 o'clock Pacific time, which is 9 o'clock our time. So the first hour... I have with you where I thought I'll talk a little bit about him and about his book. And when we have him on, there is so much more that we can discuss. If you like to get in touch with Alan Bell, then by all means, uh, contact his website, Alan Bell, A-L-A-N-B-E-L-L dot me, M-E, Alan Bell dot me. So we're talking about health, healing, and healthy lifestyles uh, every Saturday morning from 8 to 11. Uh, Gesundheit means health or good health. You know, we say it to people when they sneeze and wish them good health. And that's what we do. I wish you good health. The whole purpose of the show 18 years ago, almost 18 years ago, was that I thought if I can give tips and talk to experts, let them chat about what they do for a living, uh, research they have been they're working on, books they have written just the work in general, the passions, then hopefully we can pick up some tips that we can start using today, that we can start using this hour, if that's what you feel inspired to. So the purpose of the show has always been, are there practical tips outside, are there things you need to know so that your personal condition of, of a friend of yours or a family member is maybe better explained and hopefully gives you some suggestions about what you can do for your own health. And that is what the purpose of the show has been. Get the experts on, let them talk. Always keep in mind that advice that is given on the show should never be seen as a cure or a treatment or a diagnosis. We, we talk a lot and these words may come across like that's what we're doing. And sometimes I really, be honest with you, I feel very strongly that what is being said on the show is the truth and is a very practical solution. But I always recommend that you see a physician of your choice and get the best advice that you can find for yourself or somebody close to you. So I really appreciate your tuning in today. Slightly different show because we're talking about a book and we will have an expert on, but he is not a doctor. Alan Bell, my guest, was a prosecutor who became a medical 
Well, he had some issues. He started having some issues. And I, I thought maybe we can talk to, talk about it a little bit. I'd like to give you a slight introduction to his career. After years of prosecuting hardcore criminals, rising legal star Alan Bell took a private sector job in South Florida's newest skyscraper. Suddenly, he suffered such bizarre medical symptoms, doctors suspected he'd been poisoned by the mafia. Bell's rapidly declining health forced him to flee his glamorous Miami life to a sterile bubble unit in the remote Arizona desert. I'll get into that soon. As his career and marriage dissolved, Bell pursued medical treatments in a race against time, hoping to stay alive and raise his young daughter. He eventually discovered he wasn't poisoned by a criminal, but by his office building. His search for a cure led him to discover the horrifying truth. His plight was just the tip of the iceberg. Millions of people fall ill and die each year because of toxic chemical exposures without knowing they are at risk. Alan Bell chose to fight back. Despite his precarious health, he began collaborating with top scientists dedicated to raising awareness about this issue and finding treatments for victims. While still living in his bubble, he founded the Environmental Health Foundation, which advocates for victims of environmental injury. Meanwhile, his daughter miraculously found the one doctor who helped him. As Bell's health improved, he teamed up with other lawyers to avenge other victims in court. The book, Poisoned, puts a human face on the hidden truth behind toxic dangers assaulting us in our everyday environments and offers practical ways to protect ourselves and our children. As I said, his website, alanbell.me, A-L-A-N-B-E-L-L dot M-E, me. This is something that obviously we can talk about a lot. And it is not just Alan's story. There are so many stories out there, and this is one of the most common Alan, in one of the interviews I heard him say, he mentions, and I quote, that on a typical day, he says here in the quote, I got so many notes here, it's going to be fun, fun, fun. He said, more people get sick and die from environmental exposure in your home, school, or workplace than all those afflicted with AIDS, accidents, wars, and crime Combined. So let me say that again. More people get sick and die from environmental exposure in your home, your school, and your workplace than all those afflicted with AIDS, accidents, wars, and crime combined. He also mentions that the National Institutes of Health say that 7 out of 10 cases of cancer, 7 out of 10 cases of cancer are caused by the environment. And the World Health Organization says that 90% of the population on our planet is affected by outdoor air pollution. Now, that is quite a bit. And when you think about it, when you think, when you realize the amount of stuff that we are getting exposed to on a regular basis, then you can understand that the what is going on here is that we are in a big crisis. P pollution of the planet has continued to grow 
without delay. It, the companies who are responsible for this, their workers themselves are exposed, will be exposed, and probably will suffer from their own chemicals. Nobody is immune if you are prone to have an infection. And how do you get infections? Well, that happens through a compromised immune system. So all of us will probably have symptoms that are partly related to, that possibly related to environmental toxins and chemicals. So it is important that we keep this in mind. In a recent issue of the International Business Times, one particular headline caught Alan's attention. It says, unhealthy environment was a factor in nearly a quarter of global death in 2012. He said, as I read the article, my heart sank, even though I already knew all about the problem. According to the World Health Organization's latest report, environmental risk factors like climate change, the pollution of our air, soil, and water, and chemical exposures are responsible for nearly a quarter of all deaths worldwide. That's 12.6 million deaths, 12.6 million out of a total of 55.6 million. There are plenty of other terrifying statistics out there. Worldwide, now listen to this, worldwide about 682 pounds of toxic chemicals are released into our air, land, and water every second by industrial facilities. That is approximately 10 million tons which is over 21 billion pounds of toxic chemicals released into our environment each year. So that is unbelievable, every year. And so of these, over 2 million tons, which is over 4.5 billion billion pounds per year, are recognized carcinogens, according to the website Worldometers, which gathers statistics from the United Nations Environment Program, and the EPA, among others. Another recent study published in the journal Environmental Health Perspectives linked 16,000 premature births in the United States each year to air pollution. This is a costly health crisis. Preterm birth associated with particular matter, a type of a pollutant, led to more than $4 billion dollars in economic costs in 2010 due to medical care and lost productivity resulting from disability. Not surprisingly, the affected populations tended to be concentrated aha, in low-income communities composed of mostly minority residents. Many governments around the world legislate to clean the air we breathe, but there is much more work to be done. Voice of America recently cited a new study by Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the MIT, reporting that nearly 200,000 deaths in the United States alone occur each year as a result of air pollution, with most related to emissions from road transportation and electrical power generation. Wasteland, quote-unquote, an article published in the December 2014 issue of National Geographic magazine takes a good look at the hazardous waste sites in the United States. Although many have been cleaned up, many more remain. Nearly one in six Americans 
live, nearly one in six Americans, live near a toxic waste dump that has poisoned the ground beneath our schools, homes, and workplaces. Even where the waste has supposedly been cleaned up, as in the case of the Florida incinerator that we can talk about later, it's often still there, just swept under the surface. Cancer is only one danger associated with these sites. Birth defects is another. Meanwhile, an article published in a March 2014 issue of the Atlantic magazine details the damage done to human brains, especially to the brains of developing infants and young children, by lead and other neurotoxins commonly found in our environment. The article cites my Environmental Health Foundation colleague, Dr. Landrigan, and a paper he co-authored spelling out the, quote, silent pandemic caused by 12 toxins found in everyday furniture and other common household products. These chemicals are linked to disorders like autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and autism spectrum disorder. The real issue here, as the writer points out in the Atlantic article, is not the 12 neurotoxins that Landrigan names as culprits, including lead, arsenic, DDT, and methylmercury, which are already regulated, but the many other chemicals pouring into our environment before they are proven to be 100% safe for human health. So they're just not considered safe yet, but we'll just use them anyway. Even if you don't live near a toxic waste dump and the air you're breathing seems clean, you and your family could be exposed to harmful chemical exposures through the water you drink. On March 27, 2016, a New York Times editorial by Mona Mona Hannah Atisha, a pediatrician at Hurley Children's Hospital and an assistant professor at Michigan State University's College of Human Medicine, reminded us that the Environmental Protection, Protection Agency's action level, quote-unquote action level, for lead contamination in drinking water is 15, 15 parts per billion. Recent tests of tap water in Flint, Michigan, revealed that 1,300 homes exceed that, with 32 of those families exposed to lead levels above 1,000 parts per billion. So instead of 15 parts is the upper limit, these people had 1,000 parts per billion. For almost two years, Flint's children have been drinking water through lead-coated straws, wrote Dr. Hannah Atisha. People who believe they are immune to toxic dangers because they can afford home, homes in nice city neighborhoods or the suburbs are fooling themselves. Sure, your water and air might be free of harmful toxins, but what about your own backyard? An article published in the March 28, 2016 issue of Reader's Digest titled, quote, The Dark Side of the Perfectly Manicured American Lawn, Is It Giving You Cancer? Unquote cites alarming facts about pesticide use, despite the fact that Agent Orange was the notorious defoliant used in Vietnam. It was originally developed during World War II to destroy an enemy's rice crops. One of its key components, the pesticides 2,4-D, is still being widely used. Today's worldwide annual sales of 2,4-D surpass 
$300 million. You probably have it in your own neighborhood since it's commonly found in products used to keep our lawns green and weed-free, despite the fact that several research studies link this toxin to reproductive health problems and genetic mutations, as well as to a variety of cancers. Even far from crowded cities and suburban green lawns, rural residents are equally at risk of being poisoned, according to an article published in the June 13, 2011 issue of the Atlantic magazine, the Farm Workers Association of Florida conducted a survey in 2006 showing that 92% of the region's agricultural workers, 92% of the region's agricultural workers were exposed to pesticides through aerial spraying as well as by touching poison plants and inhaling pesticides. Little wonder then, that in a state where the rate of birth defects is 3%, a whopping 13, 13% of the farm workers in the agricultural region of Florida near Apopka had children born with defects. The bottom line, whoever you are, wherever you live and work, you and your family are at risk of being poisoned without knowing it unless you learn how to protect yourself. That is a few statistics. Folks, we're going to be we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. Good morning, caller. What's your name? How can we help you? Morning, Jacobus. This is Paul. Hey, Paul. Good morning to you. As is usually the case, you have to be a little careful with some statistics. I'll give you an example. One good. That you quoted. Yeah. Uh, 24D keeps getting convicted by what you call guilt by association. 24D was a constituent of Agent Orange. Okay. And the problem with Agent Orange was that the government changed the production standards to allow enough of it to be produced to do what the military wanted to use it for. Okay. And doing that, they allowed it to be produced at a higher temperature than is allowed for products in the commercial market. Interesting. And that change is what produced contamination called dioxin. Dioxin is a family of compounds that are very poisonous, some of which are carcinogens. It's not a problem in commercially produced 2,4-D that's used on lawns and agricultural crops and so on. So those folks that have published that information have done so by guilt by association, not by fact. Uh Uh-huh. So you have to be a little careful with some of this stuff. Well, that's a good point, Paul. Appreciate that. Of course, the funny thing is, though, that I uh, have not really a sensitivity to perfumes. I do not really feel anything when, uh, when, you know, certain things when I have certain smells, when we have to clean the carpet in the store or we have to uh, re-wax the floors. Uh, I don't have a problem with it, but some of my employees really do. They they said we need to have the yeah. doors open. And so I my understanding from reading the book with Alan, he also says not everybody is sensitive to everything. But when when he is sensitive to a lot of different things and and I think when he comes on and he'll he'll tell us some of the things that he is really knowing sensitively sensitive for, then I I don't know what reports I can trust or can believe. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, he has been fighting the battle 
against the scientists, against the doctors, against the people who say this is safe until it shows that uh, that there is a problem. And he says, currently, um, uh, every chemical produced, and I think there's over 50,000 chemicals produced in the last 40 years or so, and he says, uh, new chemicals, let me say it that way. Uh, he says, they're all uh, innocent until proven 100% guilty. And and he said, that's what he has a problem with. So when you say the 2,42.44D is not toxic, it may be in some reports based on who did the study, while others may say, you know what, this is really not a clean product. Is that? Can you agree with that? I can agree that there are varying sensitivities among the population. Yeah. And the point of all of that is that we all need to be cautious in utilizing whatever it is we are using. It's better to err on the side of caution than it is to just go ahead and dive in and get yourself exposed when you don't know. Yes. So. Yes. You know, Paul, I think that is also interesting. In his book, this is so interesting, when he talks about moving into this house that is about 50 miles out of Tucson, Arizona, in the middle of nowhere, he said 50 miles, either way, where you look, you just see cactus and some tr- uh, some mountains in the distance. And he said there's not much going on. And he lived in a house that only consisted of stone, steel, and glass. And he said there were no rugs, there were no curtains, there was no plastics in the house. This house was completely built for people with chemical sensitivities. And anybody who wanted to come and visit him had to take a shower first before he could come in. That's how bad it was. And when he would step outside, he had to wear a mask, an oxygen mask. And I said to him, we were talking the other day, and he was talking about hyperbaric oxygen chambers. And he said, there are some people that go in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and they have to wear a mask. And he said, but I cannot wear a mask. And I said, but in your book, you're mentioning that you wear a mask all the time when you have to go outside. And he said, but that was not one of those plastic masks. He said, my mask was ceramic with stainless steel tubes coming out. So it must have been quite a sight. That is how sensitive he was. Yeah. Well, and the problem, of course, is he may not have been that sensitive to initially, but something triggered the problem. Yes. And everything got worse. Correct. And what that trigger is, that's what we're always trying to find out. I have some, when I start talking about a little bit more about his story before he comes on, then maybe we can get to that because he's been to so many doctors all across the nation trying to find an answer. And everybody's just scratching their head. And I think part of the deal is, Paul, and I think you can agree with me on that, the Western medical system, and that's not an attack, it simply is a statement, is very archaic. Any positive changes that come out take a while to be implemented into the system because it takes a long time for doctors to get the news. It takes a long time for the medical books to be changed. So the new doctors are not being taught the latest of the latest. And so if anything good comes out, it doesn't mean it's going to be implemented right away. So I think there is still information going around in the medical books and in the medical schools that we could consider today as being archaic. That's true. The medical profession is not, knows it all. There is no profession that knows all. Correct. Correct. I mean, we still haven't figured out the human brain and 
We still don't know why people think a certain way when they do in the middle of the day. You know, there's still a lot to be learned and that makes it kind of exciting and also scary at the same time because we come out with things that we don't know are true. And I realize the same thing with dietary supplements. I think they all make sense. But some people may say, you know, well, show me the real solid proof, double-blind placebo-controlled studies. And then you go, okay, is that totally necessary? If you look at Chinese medicine, if an herb was had shown to be completely harmless, be effective at the same time, but harmless to the person for 100 years, so that was like three generations or four generations of people, then and only then would it become part of the Chinese pharmacopoeia. So it was not based on, let's give this a try from day one and we call it a cure, like so many things have happened in Western medicine, but it simply was, you can try this. The herbalist was being told, you can try it. We'll see if it works, but we're not making anything official unless it is safe for 100 years. And I think that is a very interesting, is very interesting way of going about things. But when you look at it, Paul, we, you know, those were also very different times. We're talking about 3,000 years ago. If you see what has happened in the last 50 years, as far as the new introduction of different chemicals and the use of growth hormones on animals and the hormone replacement therapies in women, what that has done to the groundwater and to the health of people is not always been very positive. And we're still waiting for the long-term effects of this on the planet. Right. And I would confirm Clint's stance on that. We are doing some things <clears throat> that we're going to regret in the future. I agree with you. Already need to be regretting and don't know it yet. All right. Great point, Paul. I really appreciate your comment. And it, it is always good to stop and think before you make a statement. I was reading from Alan's book, Poisoned, and I do assume that he has done a lot of research on this, and yeah. that's why he published it. But so, I, I surely appreciate your comment. Yeah, some of, the, some of the sources of information, the World Health Organization is one that, that I don't trust as much as some other organizations. But nevertheless, yeah. mistakes are made in all kinds of fields. I think part of it is good to know that people say, wait a second, this is a serious issue. And number two, what can I do to protect myself and my family? And I think if we can start with that, and if you feel the power to start to make changes today and not have to wait another year or so for official news, then I think this is great to live in this country that we are able to do this. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, thanks, thanks for the call, Paul. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. Caller, good morning. Thanks for joining today. What's your name? How can we help you? Yes, good morning, Jacobus. It's Linda Oyama. Hey, Linda. Good morning to you. Oh, yeah. So thank you again for a wonderful program. Oh, thank um, you. I would just like to comment here because my sister-in-law was nearly killed by an air purifier. Wow. It had ozone in it, and it was, you know, in a filter, she was never told that that was ozone. She has extreme allergies and asthma. And this filter was installed at the time of the forest fires. And she thought she would help her mother with her breathing, who she did eventually pass away. So she had this air purifier installed yeah. on her furnace. Oh, yeah. And, of course, we never thought... We were not told it was ozone. We knew she was highly susceptible to ozone because we'd been in an issue with it before. And it was just simply called an air purifier. Well, since then, I've worked with quite a few people who have those tiny little units, 
and a lot of them will plug them in and forget about them and think about them being an air purifier. Well, they are to a point. Are those those but, little brown boxes that, that you yes. put in the corner so they, you can smell the ozone when you walk in a room? Yes. So they're yes. not really true ozone? Well, it is true ozone, but it's a level that if you especially are sensitive, your air purifier can kill you. Good point. And which happened to her. She staggered out of the house and couldn't even speak. We thought it was probably mold, but the house proved to be drier than a cork. <laughs> <laughs> and then we had air controls come in, and they found that she had that air purifier with an ozone filter on yes. the furnace. Yes. And it was definitely, we proved it out. She's now able by air, shutting it off, getting it out of there, and airing the house out, taking her two weeks to completely get rid of the ozone in the house. It's in the walls, in the carpet, the ceiling, it's everywhere now. Oh, my goodness. So it has to be aired out to the point that she will be able to go back in there. Huh. You know, so that's interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Linda. Yeah, something to consider because we can be so deceived, you know, air purifier, it sounds like a wonderful thing to yes, do. Yes, yes. You know, it's and interesting yet, that we, the, the other day, I, Alan and I were talking to each other, and we spent quite a bit of time, and, and one of the questions he asked me if I had heard of ozone therapy, and I said, yes, I have. And he said, have you heard of IV ozone therapy? And I said, yes, I have. I said, I've also heard about people using ozone rectally. And I talked to him about that I have smelled these ozone uh, machines. And he said, oh, yes. no, 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 I cannot smell that. He said, that makes me horribly sick. Yes. Now, Linda, yes. I know that you have done all kinds of alternative treatments. Have you mm -hmm. ever done IV ozone or rectally ozone? No, I don't allow anything to be injected into my body in any way like that. Okay. And, of course, we do energy testing through the muscle testing and the spiritual concept of the body having all of the knowledge of what's good for it. Good point. I do recommend the ionic foot bath yeah. to remove toxicity as well as the liver cleanses. Okay. And we've had good success with that. Some people are kind of like the canary in the mine, and it's most generally liver, gallbladder, and the ionic foot bath seems to release a lot of that toxicity, as well as liver cleanses. They've worked wonderful. So I, I do recommend those kind of things, but uh, yeah, I, I'm not into this injection thing. Okay, well, that's a good point. Well, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Thanks for your input, Linda. Thank you so okay. much. You're welcome. Thank you, Blast. Okay, bye -bye. thank you much. Bye-bye. A few things that I can say about him, if you would like to hear some of that, because his... It's literally something. When he was, he was born in 1954, his father was a World War II vet who had landed on Omaha Beach and who fought all the way through the Battle of the Bulge in 1944. Then he was awarded the Purple Heart, and after that he went to New York to earn a law degree. His mother was a wonderful lady. He also has a younger brother, Bobby, and a younger sister, Judy, who is a chiropractor, who became a chiropractor, his wife at the time, who we had separated from, uh, divorced, uh, was Susan. She was an old high school uh, person, high school uh, <laughs> classmate. 
And he has a daughter, Ashley, who was born on Super Bowl Sunday, 1988. He was totally into music. He just loved playing the drums and had lessons as a teenager. Uh, he even got lessons from uh, Danny Seraphine, the original drummer of the band Chicago. He won the Florida State High School Drumming Championships in 1972. He wasn't much into college studies, but he loved music. He was accepted by and he received a scholarship from the University of Miami to play music and to travel with the band. He became a little bit more serious about studies. He transferred to the University of Miami School of Business Administration. He also joined a professional business fraternity. He graduated magna cum laude in the top 2% of his class. Inspired by the Perry Mason TV show, which was his mom's favorite, he decided to go to law school and then go after the bad guys, as he said. From 1979 to 1986, 1979 to 1986, Alan Bell worked as a prosecutor with the Florida State Attorney's Office, which was then under Janet Reno, who later became Attorney General for Clinton, where he prosecuted cases against Colombian cartels, mobsters, and other hardcore felons. His very first felony case was in 1982, and the defendant was a... Uh, he got... He got chipped because the, the, the guy who was the, 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 the defense attorney uh, was one of the, was the godfather of all criminal defense lawyers, John Barron, and who just nailed him. And anyway, he, um, he has quite a story to tell you a little bit about some of his treatments that he's been because it is almost too many to mention. But when he started, when he, as a young child, he had asthma, and I wonder if this asthma to certain allergies ha was a base for Alan Bell to start having different symptoms. Maybe his immune system was already somewhat compromised. And even though he lived a healthy lifestyle, maybe there was still a, a trigger that got pulled when he got exposed to toxins. And we'll find out. So when he started having some symptoms, a friend recommended an internal medicine practitioner who thought he just had a virus. So they just gave him antibiotics, which you all know right now, an, an antibiotic goes after bacterial infections, not viral infections. So that was stupid. After relapsing, we got higher fever, hot flashes, nausea and vomiting. His eyes were burning. He goes back and he gets a stronger antibiotic. His knee joints felt like they were on fire. Then he had another physician. Then another physician and in the hospital, and the diagnosis was atypical pneumonia. The treatment was IV with antibiotics and steroids. Result, incredible burning in the chest and esophagus. After emergency endoscopy, the doctor discovered candida fungus in the esophagus, which therefore probably was caused by all the antibiotics he was on. Now, when we come back, Alan will be on, and he can tell us a lot more about some of the doctors he went to but it, what a journey and i highly recommend if you have a chance get the book poisoned you can get it at country bookshelf you can i uh, call them first i gotta make sure they have it and barnes and nobles locally and otherwise you can go to amazon.com which i'm not a big fan of but if that's where you need to get it that's another way it's called poisoned by alan bell and hopefully you check that out we're going to take a short break. I'm going to give Alan a call, and then you and I will be back in about six minutes. So stay tuned, strap in, get pen and paper ready. It's going to be an exciting ride till 11 o'clock. We'll be right back. 
Alan, I really appreciate you spending a couple hours with us here in Bozeman. Good morning, Jehovah. I'm glad to be here. Thank glad you. to be here with you. <laughs> it's awesome. I just love it. I just so enjoyed your book, and I've been trying to go through it again, trying to pick up some highlights and I thought one of the more fascinating stories was for me the amount of doctors that you started seeing. And, you know, you even say at one point, I saw so many doctors that I lost count. And I started writing down kind of chronological events, how often you went to a doctor, what the diagnoses were, and how you moved on from there. And the interesting thing, though, Alan, is that you as a young person, and I don't know what time you were, what, how old you were when it started, you were dealing with asthma. Yeah, as a child, just occasional asthma, you know, once or twice a year. It wasn't a big deal. It was something that virtually everybody or many people may experience. It wasn't unusual by today's standards. Well, if I read the story about you almost uh, collapsing in a hotel, uh, and your parents and your younger brother had to carry you out to the beach. That looks pretty intense to me. Oh, no. I was speaking about as a child. Okay. As an adult, when this thing happened, oh, my God. So you were was... an adult when this happened in the hotel in... Uh, in... Right. Oh, okay. Okay. That's correct. I was an adult. I was in my mid-30s. Oh, wow. Okay. I was at the height of my career, 30, 34, 35 years old. Okay. Yes. Wow. But my goodness, it is the weirdest thing. I was wondering, indeed, that if you maybe had already something lingering in your system that would come out through the lungs, if that was eventually the trigger that when you got exposed to the environmental toxins in a new building, that uh, that was eventually the trigger that was pulled. You know, it's a cumulative thing. As we all age, we all accumulate toxins on a cumulative basis from the very day we're born until the day we die. And all disease and premature death boils down to basically two things, the genes that you're born with and the environment that you're exposed to. So it's, it's really hard to tell, you know, from person to person, at least in my case, what exactly it was on a long-term basis that set me up to become more vulnerable than other people in that building. Yeah. What happened to you? And again, I wrote down kind of a, a list of your journey. Do you mind if I read some of that? Sure, go Maybe, ahead. Uh, just to remind your own memory, <laughs> to refresh <laughs> your own memory. Here is a friend who recommends an internal medicine practitioner who thought you had a virus. So he gives you antibiotics, which makes no sense because if it's a virus, you don't use antibiotics. That's right. After relapsing, you got higher fever, hot flashes, nausea, and vomiting. Eyes were burning. You go back to the doctor and you get a stronger antibiotic. Your knee joints felt like you were on fire. Then you go to another physician, and in the hospital, you're being diagnosed with atypical pneumonia. The treatment is IV with antibiotics and steroids. The result? Incredible burning in the chest and esophagus. After emergency endoscopy, doctor discovered candida fungus in the esophagus, which is probably caused by all the antibiotics. The next physician, he was a hematologist. He diagnoses you with Epstein-Barr virus, the virus that causes mononucleosis. Allen had high antibodies. New symptoms became doubling over in pain when smelling perfumes. Lungs would seize up when driving with the windows down, inhaling the car exhausts. Teary eyes and difficulty breathing 
when exposed to cigarette smoke. Driving his new car, you couldn't handle the air conditioning anymore. The exterminator came over to the house and sprayed pesticides to kill the bugs. You passed out. Eventually, you began having real troubles with breathing, losing work over it, too ill to make it to court cases. You were hardly eating and starting to lose weight. This was also hard on the marriage. More people in this tower that you went into, we can talk about the 110 tower, started feeling in, ill. No fresh airflow in the building because of closed ventilation system. There was mold and all kinds of bad stuff in the carpet and paint. Then you started doing the doctor shuffle. You were determined to find a solution by finding the right doctor. During the next year or so, you would see physician after physician eventually losing count and creating an ever-growing medical file. More and more tests were done. You were diagnosed with the following. Fatigue, fibromyalgia, cognitive dysfunction, short-term memory loss, disorientation, blurry vision, impaired coordination, inflamed joints, gastrointestinal dysfunction, respiratory dryness, asthma, and seizures. Doctors became more and more frustrated, angry, and confused. Some would call you psychosomatic. At the National Jewish Health in Denver, Colorado, an academic medical research facility dedicated exclusively to the research and treatment of respiratory allergy and immune diseases, Alan, you saw Dr. Charles Kirkpatrick. This physician told you both that your red and white blood counts were very low and that your liver enzymes were off. The diagnosis was poisoned. Then you went to the Mayo Clinic, Minnesota. Alan, you had to stay in a week and to see many doctors, even a psychiatrist. That diagnosis was leukopenia, which was caused you to be prone to infections. Plus, you were diagnosed with chronic fatigue from the Epstein-Barr virus. Now, that's crazy stuff. It is. It's I mean, crazy. And it was a whirlwind, basically, just not even understanding what was happening and trusting the orthodox medical profession, believing that if I got into the right hands, that they would get to the bottom of whatever I was experiencing. Yeah. And I would... There was, it never crossed my mind that it, that would be incurable. It never crossed my mind that they would never get to the bottom of it. Right. I, I've always entrusted, you know, growing up as an American in this country, you, you, you know, you, you believe in the integrity of the white coat. That's what I always called it, the white coat. Yeah. Doctors were walking in the office with a stethoscope wrapped, wrapped around their neck and wearing a white coat. Yeah. They will always get to the bottom of whatever's wrong with you and, and fix you. Yes. Unfortunately, that's not the way it is, especially now. I mean, even more so now than it was back, you know, in the 80s. In the even 80s. Even more so. Yes. We're probably going to jump back and forth a little bit here in time, but what is one of those big differences that you see today versus the 80s? Is it simply the fact that people can look things up on the Internet? The big thing in terms of the medical profession? Yeah, that we as consumers or patients are talking back to doctors because we're reading books and more magazines about health and there is more focus on alternative health and that people can look things up on the internet and that people start getting frustrated with the slow development and research done in Western medicine. I think the real root difference between now and then was the fact that 
medicine in the United States is becoming more and more socialized. You know, ability to be effective is less and less. And because it's become more and more ineffective, people are looking in other directions. And the directions that they're looking at is alternative medicine. I mean, the word alternative speaks for itself. People want to find alternatives because orthodox medicine is letting us down. So the birth of orthodox medicine as we know it today became true. And that in conjunction with the technology that we have available now and going on the Internet and looking at alternative avenues of treatment is where I think where we ended up. But I think the root of it all really is the direction of orthodox medicine in becoming more and more socialized. You know, people from all over the world used to come to the United States for treatment because it was by far the best model, you know, medicine. Now, people in the United States are leaving (laughs) and going to other countries like Germany, Switzerland, even Mexico to find treatment. Also, yes. Uh Yeah, and it doesn't guarantee that everything will be better, but and sometimes I think people think the farther away I go, probably find another doctor. But wherever you go, it will be somebody else's backyard, right? <laughs> right. It'll be somebody else's backyard. Yes. Absolutely. My goodness. I think that what totally amazed me was reading your story about going to Tucson and being there 50 miles out of town in the middle of nowhere in this house. And I seen the pictures on the internet. It looks like it was 850 square foot house. But tell us a little bit about how the, who constructed this house and how you got in there and what that was like. Well, it was an environmentally safe house. I called it the bubble because that's basically what it was. It was a house constructed by an older lady who had the same injury and the same illness that I have. So she constructed it out of all 100% safe materials. And when I mean safe, I mean totally inert materials. They don't outgas any volatile organic compounds. So it was basically built out of glass, brick, and steel. Huh. That's it. Yeah. And inside the house, it was basically like a jail, cold, austere jail cell. Yeah. There was no drapes, no carpeting, no warm, fuzzy pillows or anything like that. There I ended up 145 pounds, and I'm six foot two. I weigh 185 now in a wheelchair tethered to an oxygen tank. And when you looked outside the windows, all you saw was cactus. No roads, no schools, no people, no stores, nothing. It was basically isolated and desolate. And the reason why it was in the middle of nowhere is because there was no automobile exhaust. There was basically no pollens. No molds because it was a dry, arid climate. Yeah. And it was a place where I was basically put into isolation. So I would not be exposed to any pollens or molds or or chemicals that I would react to. And when I reacted, I went into grand mal seizures. Wow. Give me an idea uh, how you could react to anything if you were inside most of the time. What do you mean, how I could react? I was reading that people who would wanted to come in to see you, including your doctor Ash, daughter Ashley, would have to take a shower first. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. So was the shower yeah. outside? 
there was uh, there actually there actually was a, a shower outside. Yeah. And this, imagine this: this is five thousand feet above sea level. So yes. in the winters, you you would get a little snow. It's nothing like Bozeman, but yeah. you would get it would go down in the thirties at night. So they would basically have to take a shower outside. It was well water, so there was no chlorine residue. Okay. And there would be an extra set of clothes that were specially laundered in scent-free detergents that they would put on, and they would wash all scents off of their body, whether it be scented clothes, scented moisturizers from their skin, scented shampoos or conditioners, all that stuff would come off. Wow. Yeah. And then they would come into the house. If they didn't do that, and they came in without decontaminating first, I would have grand mal seizures wow. just by them walking into the into this bubble. And then how long would something like that take? Because now they bring the so-called, let's call them the toxins for you, they would bring them inside. So uh, how, how long would it take for you to clean all that out? Well, uh, we had um, oh, filters. A, an exhaust fan okay. Okay. that we would turn on, and it would just suck anything out of the interior place out. Yeah. So it wouldn't take long because of the the technology we had in the bubble. But is it then also for you, I know you were primarily using a wheelchair at the time, but That's when, right. you, when you would sleep, uh, would you sleep on a, on, on stone? Or would you, <laughs> what would you sleep on? That's a, that's, a, that's a very good question. And what I would sleep on, it was a specially designed organic cotton mattress that had no chemicals whatsoever and uh, the interior was basically uh, metal coils and they would use cotton batting on on you know on the tops that you would sleep on but it was still very very hard it wasn't a plush mattress that people sleep on today and did you have a pillow as well Uh, an organic cotton pillow right wow did you have washing machine and dryer inside the, the house that's an interesting question the the, the bubble was basically just uh, a bathroom, bedroom, and a common living area there. And on the outside, there was a separate structure about 50 feet away that housed the kitchen and the laundry, the laundry room. Because not only was I reactive to chemicals, but I was also reactive to electromagnetic frequencies. Didn't know it at the time. Huh. Just knew that when they would turn on electrical appliances, it would cause me to have seizures. But eventually, we figured it out that that's what was going on as well. So I had a separate structure for kitchen and laundry room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your wife at the time, Susan... Was uh, would she also live with you in that house? Um, she did. She stayed with me in that house, and then she uh, would go out and cook in the kitchen, and then bring the food uh, to right. the house. Right. Exactly. Yes. Did you cook yourself? Would you go out there and cook for yourself? You know, I'm trying to think. Maybe occasionally I would do that. Because Maybe what else would you eat? What would I eat? Yeah, I mean, if you cannot handle the fumes from cooking and, and all that stuff, how would that affect, how would you eat? Well, you know, I was with her, but, you know, when she left, you yeah. know, I don't, I'm getting ahead of myself, but when she left, we had hired an aide to, to help us. Oh, who would do all of the shopping, cooking, but I ate, and I continue to eat a high percentage of raw foods. Oh. So, 
You don't even need to cook when you eat raw food. That's right? true. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, right. But were you a vegan at the time uh, to to eat primarily raw, or were you able to eat meats and fish? I ate fish. I ate eggs, and that was basically the, the animal protein. And you know what? That's basically what I eat now. I don't eat red meat now. I'll eat. I'll eat fish. I'll eat some chicken, and I'll eat seafood. But the seafood that I'll eat now is very low mercury content. I see. You know, there's there's different fish that have different mercury content. You want to eat the ones that are at the at the bottom of the food chain, not at the top. Now, I know that uh, you were still working as well. You tried to do some work and read, and I think I read in the book that you even had a sensitivity to the ink on the paper. That's right. Uh, now, when you say well, I was working, well, I was no longer earning any income uh, because I was basically fighting for my life. So what uh, the reading that I would do is is to desperately reach out and find, are there any new treatments or are there any new cures that I, that I could try? Right. Uh, now, when I would read this these books, remember, there was no Kindle back then. There was no <laughs> personal computers back then. Yeah. They used to make these reading boxes, and that's what they called them, reading boxes. Yes. And basically you would put a book inside of a, a little box, maybe the size of a, a, you know, a shoe box, yes. a little bigger than that, yes. and you would put the book inside of it and, and look, look at it through glass. Yeah. Now to turn the pages, there were, there were two holes at the bottom of this, or on the side of the box where you would insert your hands, wow. and they were like gloves. You know, yeah, like in it. a laboratory they use. Yeah. Like in a laboratory, exactly. Alan, we're going to take a short break. We're coming up to a hard break here, so we're going to go over the air. Well, we'll be right back. What I appreciate with you is that you were, as a teenager, you loved music. You became a drummer. You drummed. <laughs> I don't want to say you drummed your way through high school and college, but you kind of did. You won a state championship drumming. And you went to travel with the University of Miami, uh, University of Miami. You went even to Sweden where you guys won a prize. But then you decided to become a little bit more studious. And then you ended up in the career where you ended up a prosecutor, an attorney, doing all kinds of cases. You were traveling all over to take care of people, take care of the bad guys, which is something that you enjoy doing because you were inspired by Perry Mason. And so what a journey for you to go from feeling on top of the world and being in great shape and being athletic and meeting your high school friend, uh, Susan, and become a husband and wife and have a daughter, Ashley, born in 88, to all of a sudden start having these issues. And we were just talking about you living in the bubble, and I want to continue with that, but that is the next chapter. First, you started having all these problems when you moved in your new job, which was for the travel, travel insurance? Was that what it was? Well, it was an insurance defense firm. We were a law firm, and the biggest client was Traveler's Insurance Company. So somebody was insured by Traveler's Insurance Company. Let's say, let's say you're insured by Traveler's, and, yeah. and you get in an automobile accident, and they sued you personally, and you had Traveler's. Well, Traveler's would you know, obtain a lawyer for you to defend you, and that would be me. Aha. Aha. That would be me. Yes. And then they moved into a brand new building, which was top of the line, 
1988. That was everything was electronic, and but they were still. You were somewhere on the top floor of a 30-floor building, and they were still finishing up a bunch of floors that uh, needed to be finished. And so they all the glues and everything they used, you started having all kinds of problems. And all of a sudden, you got a call from the assistant of one of the judges. And, and she said, you got to get out of the building. Uh, tell us more about how that went. Well, that was interesting because uh, uh, about that time, I was going all over the country trying to find medical help. Yeah. And uh, every doctor came up with a different reason. It was either, you know, I had a low blood cell count or I had, you know, I had Epstein-Barr virus. And nobody ever said illness was in any way related to the environment. And then till finally one doctor sat me down to his office, and that was in the uh, National Jewish Hospital in Denver, Colorado. And he looks at me right in the eye, and he said to me, that those blood tests show that you have been poisoned. And he looked at me and asked me, do I know anybody that would want to poison me? Yeah. And, you know, at this time, I was an organized crime prosecutor. I was putting Colombian cartel drug ring people in jail and wow. mafioso people in jail. Wow. And, of course, I said, yes, I know people that, that would want to poison me. They, there would be a whole bunch of them that would want to do that. Right. And right. he said, well, listen, why don't you just take a rest from these blood tests for a week, go back to South Florida, and rest, and then come back, and we'll do another round of blood tests to isolate what kind of poison it was. So I immediately went back to South Florida and sat my investigators down and told them to find out who had poisoned me. Not what had poisoned me, but who had poisoned me. Right, right. And they combed through all aspects of my life. Uh, they went to the movie theaters that I went to, the gymnasiums that I worked out in, the restaurants that I ate in, the courthouses that I worked in. And finally, they ended up at the office that I worked in. And you know what they found? They found that there were other people in the building that were getting ill as well. So my initial reaction was, oh my gosh, you mean they poisoned them too? Oh, wow, yeah. So what happened was, is we found out, ultimately, that it was the new carpeting, the new glues, the new paints, all the new materials that they were using on the floor that was still under construction that I was working in, mm. that we were all breathing. And me and my co-workers became ill from that chemical exposure. So I thought that was the good news. My gosh, we finally found out what it was. Right. Now I can get better, right, Doc? No. The bad news was is that there was no known cure for that. And that had that these chemical exposures had caused me to become hypersensitive to virtually everything in the environment. Perfumes, colognes, hairsprays, automobile exhaust newsprint, pollens, molds, foods, everything. And the only solution was to prevent these from happening to me because at this point in time, I was getting grand mal seizures when I was exposed to any of these substances, which is basically everything. Wow. So they imprisoned me into a bubble in the mm -hmm. middle of nowhere. And the bad news was is that uh, this is how I was 
destined to end up for the rest of my life. Wow. So. Wow. Thank you, Carla, for joining us today. What is your name? How can we help you, please? Hi there. I'm Donnie. Hi, Donnie. And I've talked with you before. We got some of your CBD oil a couple of weeks ago, and, it, and it's really, really helping. I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you so yep. much for sharing okay. that. So, so, so to the point, the, the chemical, being exposed to chemicals is, is you know, it, it changes your body, obviously. I just had a friend that passed about two weeks ago, and wow. he, my age, he's 63, and he lived, grew up in Port Arthur, Texas, where it's just totally, you know, you could see it in the air. You know, all like down there, Texas City and all that, it's all those chemicals, those uh, plants where they make, uh, you know, petroleum products. And he died of Alzheimer's. He got ALS. ALS. He had ALS, and he is convinced, he was convinced that just the environment he grew up in caused that. But that's all I just wanted to say. I was listening a minute ago. I just caught it a few minutes. And oh, stay, stay tuned, uh, because oh, Alan has an amazing story. Well, Donnie, I, I wanted to tell you about the ALS. You know, I have, a, you know, I have a, a, an explanation of what happened to your, to your friend. Wow. Oh, God. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll stay tuned. You guys... No, you can stay on the phone. He wants to uh, talk to you. There, there, there's a there's a whole chapter in my book about someone who got ALS. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So right. this Very is something good. that you this is something that you got to hear. Do you okay. want to talk a little bit about it, Alan? You want to right you now? Wanna, sure. Yeah, you there, there's a chapter it? in my book. Jacobus, uh, yeah. I'm just getting into Bozeman. I got to get off the phone. You know how it goes. Okay. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> Appreciate the call. Okay. All bye. Right, bye. Well, there's a chapter in the book. Is that the postal worker? Is that the postal worker? No, this is the football coach. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, Dan. Dan, the football coach. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's unreal. He's the football coach, uh, Holy Cross College. He was voted coach of the year in the United States for football. Yes. He was in his office in the gymnasium, and they resurfaced the gymnasium floors with these, you know, these clear chemicals. And he did not leave the office when they did that. He was in there when they did that. They should have told him to leave, but they didn't. So he was exposed to those chemicals, and there's a family of chemicals called isocyanates that he was exposed to when they resurfaced the floors. Yeah. And uh, he initially got sick, and the sickness never went away. It turned into chemical sensitivity, which is what, what, what I have. Yeah. And then it progressed to the point where he couldn't walk and he was in a wheelchair. And they ultimately diagnosed him with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Yes. And the disease virtually killed him. Yeah. His wife was a registered nurse. And no doctors would relate the chemical exposure to the onset of ALS. They came to me because they knew in their hearts that that's what did him in. Yes. And I got top scientists from Harvard and from Duke University Medical School. They, what they did is they exposed rat, laboratory rats to the same chemicals that he was exposed to when they put the new floors in. They're called isocyanates. Yes. And it caused the rats that had the ALS gene to get ALS and die. So we used that, those scientists and their testimony and their studies and we brought them into court, into federal court in Boston. And this was the first case in the history of the United States where we, we were able to show in a courtroom, able to prove in a courtroom through medical testimony, that the exposure 
of isocyanates to individuals that have a dormant ALS gene yes. triggers that gene to turn on and they get ALS and they die. That's and that's the first case in the history of the country where we were able to show a direct relationship between chemical exposure and the, and the onset of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Yes. Oh, that is such a, that is such a heart-wrenching story because what this man had to go through and his wife and, and being such an athlete and then the school fires him because, well, he couldn't, he couldn't do the job anymore. He was sitting on a wheelchair, but it was getting worse and worse every year. And he was very successful, very well loved. And the people literally just saw him waste away. And I, I've heard other stories about that, about ALS. You know, one thing that really amazes me, and, and I, I haven't really heard you talk about it in other interviews, is you are such a researcher and you have worked so hard, even while living in the bubble in that house in Tucson, outside of Tucson, like you just said, you were so sensitive to the print on paper and the paper itself that you had to use this uh, this this box to put the book in and then turn the pages with these inserted gloves but for you to do the amount of research that you did and then also you were never afraid to call people you called researchers you said this is who i am this is what's going on with me and I just want to work with you. And you started creating these amazing, that you actually started creating this amazing network. And so in the book, by and by, you, you just keep throwing names at us, uh, the readers, about people. You say, you know what, for this one, I called so-and-so, who I knew from my foundation. And, you know, it, it is just amazing how you were able, therefore, in this case of this football coach, Dan, to get the answers that you needed and to get the man the help that was still possible and to create a relationship with his wife that has lasted this long. So it's really wonderful how you do that, Alan. And I, I compliment you for that because many people would literally, and you have seen plenty of them in your journey who did not have this kind of fiery background. You say time and time again in the book, you wanted to live for your daughter. You wanted to see her grow up. You wanted to be a grandfather. You wanted to be in her life and you didn't want to wither away. And how many people you saw who ended up passing away because they didn't get the help that you were looking for? Now, you mentioned this Gulf War or this vet, this Iraqi vet that's in your community. Yes. That has something similar. I can't tell you all the thousands of Gulf War vets, okay? that ended up like this. Gulf War One, Gulf War Two. Yes. And even as recently as this other, you know, war there. You know, because they're all exposed to all of these chemicals in the war there between the the smoke from the fires that Saddam Hussein lit up to just trash everything. To, to the chemicals that the U.S. government is spraying uh, on the, in the uniforms and on the people, on the, on the veterans, you know, for pesticides that they're sleeping on. That deadly combination has caused thousands of Gulf War vets to, to end up living in bubbles all over the United States, Plus, don't forget all the vaccinations that they receive That's right. when they go overseas. And many of them, big guys, I mean, strong soldiers, they don't have to be big, but strong soldiers who are out for the count for at least a day, if not a whole weekend. They're laying in bed and they're sick. And then right. By, by That's right. It's America's finest, America's 
strongest are falling down like flies. Yeah. We have another And if call. it happens yeah. to them, yes. what do you think is going to happen? What do you think it's going to do to the rest of us? And all the children who get vaccinated at such an early age and start having all these uh, symptoms. It's just another way of exposing us to chemicals. And once they enter the bloodstream, it is extremely hard to get rid of them. And, uh, you know, they're, right. they're all triggers. Alan, we have another uh, caller on hold. Uh, good morning, caller. Thanks for joining. Your name, please. How can we help you? Jacobus, this is Vinny. Hey, Vinny. I, I, uh, I find this show to be very interesting today. Thank you, you Vinny. to be starting to draw a web between uh, chemical exposure, genetic predisposition, and vaccination, environmental toxins. And, and the gentleman said that he had the benefit of going to National Jewish, which are fine institutions that do extensive research into Jewish genetic uh, diseases. Oh, interesting. Which I came across an article last week, and I was shocked. This article broke down the number of genetic predisposition diseases, serious diseases, that are in the Jewish community, and they broke it down between Ashkenaz Jews and and Mizrahi and Sephardic Jews, and they had it all sorted down. So this institution is sorting it out. I mean, they're looking for these genetic predispositions. So to get more to my point, it sounds like the author is looking along those lines. Did you find any links between group genetic predispositions and these chemical exposures? Yeah, Vinny, Vinny, that's a very intelligent question. There is a definite link between genetic subpopulations and the susceptibility of environmental exposure. You mentioned the Jewish people. You know, if if you look at the history of the, the Jewish people, there's Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardic Jews, right? Okay, so the Ashkenazi Jews are the ones that migrated from the Middle East to Northern Europe. And they're more like fair, light, light hair, blue-eyed, light-skinned people. When they were in the European communities for hundreds of years, they basically lived in small ghettos because the countries that hosted them wouldn't allow them to integrate into the rest of their country. So they basically, in, in many respects, uh, they, they inbred. They just reproduced from within their small population. Huh. And when you have a... And when you have a, a more concentrated gene pool like that, you're going to be more susceptible to, to, to chronic disease than, than the average population. Interesting, yes. Yeah. So the point is, Vinny, is that all human disease and premature death basically boils down to only two things, and that's the genes that you're born with and the environment that you're exposed to. And that intersection of those two variables are going to produce the outcome of your susceptibility to environmental toxins throughout your lifetime. So the variance in susceptibility to environmental exposure can be widespread from one person to another. In other words, you could be exposed to the same toxins that I'm exposed to, and your hardiness could be a thousand times more potent than mine. So I'm going to be much more susceptible to the same things that you're exposed to. And that's why, you know, early on with these medical syndromes, doctors would say, well, how come other people didn't get sick? Why only you? 
and, and and that's because of individual you know susceptibility to these things and it goes to the uh, cigarette smoking as well you know Alan, you have Alan, we have we have to go again to a hard break here so let, let's continue then in the next hour Vinny, thanks so much for the call call back if you want to add to this we gotta go stay tuned we'll be right back Good morning, Carla. Thanks for joining the program today. What is your name and how can we help you? This is New Thread. Oh, yeah. look at that. But a new I, threat. I, I, I want to start a new thread here before time critters away. By definition, there is no rational reason why evil does things. It goes beyond making money and amassing power. Mass murders and things. People are releasing known toxins into the air haphazardly. Yeah. Now, would you say something about that or do you take the safer road that these are just a products of rational greed or are these products of somebody that enjoys being population suffer butterflies flap around in in their toxins alan this is for you okay so the question is is do you think do i think that this is a What's causing all these toxins to, to, to be around all of us? Is that Well, is, part of it is, yeah, it, yeah. is it greed, or is there something else? Is there another agenda involved? Yeah, right. yeah, an evil agenda of... Uh, of right, um, right. Okay, I get the question. Well, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that believe in conspiracies and the chemtrails and, and all of that, but, you know, everybody has their own opinion, and it's, this is just my opinion that I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of guy, okay? I don't believe there's any kind of a, a concerted effort to to depopulate the planet. I just think that basically it's 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 a it's a collection of greed among a lot of different people. And you've got one company that can increase their profits by selling cigarettes, then they're gonna do that. Yeah. If you get another company that wants to add sugar or artificial sugar or anything coloring. to increase yeah. their sales then they're going to do that i think it's more about you know greed than anything else and, and i don't think it i don't think it's any kind of, of a conspiracy where you get you know 10 people sitting at a table that are controlling the planet that are pulling the strings i don't think it's like that at all i just think that it's greed and i think that if you have more regulation to prevent this from happening that's really, I think the approach would be twofold, and that is institute more regulations so to prevent this greed from occurring. That's number one. And number two, making people aware of what's going on, public awareness, educating them so, so you could modify your lifestyle, minimize your risk, and prevent yourself and your family from becoming another statistic. You know, People, mothers want to know how to protect their children. That's why if you go to Whole Foods, you see this whole organic movement, a groundswell of this movement, because people want to know how to protect themselves. Yeah. But they're not getting that from the companies, the corporations, because they just want to sell products that are increase the bottom line, which is basically lower the costs of, of per item that they're selling and increase the sales by putting sugar and salt and everything else in their products that are going to, you know, that, that, that are going to stimulate the demand. Yeah. But when, when, when people are more educated and they know that these things are not good for them, they know that the carpeting they're putting in their houses are, are not, is not good for them and they, they should have 
tile or hard wood like they did 100 years ago. Yes. That industry of t- the tile on the floor and the non-toxic uh, Compounds, paints yeah. is going to be a mo- more of a, a of demand for those products. And when the demand increases, the supply increases, and the price per unit goes down, and the economics of the situation turns where corporate America wants to supply the demand for the products, safer products. So if there's an increased demand of green products, then there's going to be more of an increased supply, and the, and the price per unit is going to go down, and the whole economy is going to shift. You know, as we're speaking right now, this is the largest shift in the economy ever of where it's a global shift where people, where the corporations now are manufacturing more and more green products. Billions of dollars are being funneled into the green sector of the economy because that's where the demand is going and the supply is basically catering to the demand. So in my roundabout answer, I would say to you two things. Number one, we need increased uh, regulations to prevent corporations from allowing themselves to be greedy and producing toxic products, number one. And number two, we need to make the public more aware of, of what's safe to consume and what's not safe to consume so you could modify your lifestyle and minimize your risk. You see, all human disease and premature death basically boils down to the environment that you're exposed to and the genes that you're born with. And you can control your environment. You can control your environment. If you modify your lifestyle, you you can minimize your risk and prevent yourself and your family Mm -hmm. from becoming another statistic. The technology is out there. I mean, you could buy a safe paint. It doesn't have to be a toxic paint. You could buy safe clothes. You don't have to buy safe toxic clothes. You could buy safe shampoos and body lotions, all of these things. They're safe alternatives, and and many of these safe alternatives, I'm not going to plug your store, but the the reality is is that if you you go to stores like Gesundheit, health food stores. Oops. Did I lose you? What happened here? I think I may have lost uh, Alan. All of a sudden, we just uh, lost contact. So let me see what I can do. All right, we got you back. Uh, you were talking about uh, there are indeed alternatives. There are things that people can do, and you can you can buy buy healthy paint. You can buy healthier food, organic foods. You can buy free range meats uh, and 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 chicken and eggs and all that stuff. You can you can buy organic dietary supplements that are complete gluten-free and toxin-free and are kosher and it's it's all available today uh there is there are those with artificial junk in it and uh, you can buy those if that's what you want to do but you can also decide to really look at the labels and find the ones that work for you and uh, that's absolutely true alan and the pain and the suffering that he had to deal with plus what it did to him in his personal life and his family life is just touching and and horrible but then as you progress through the book and he starts finding healing which we're going to get to in just a moment then all of a sudden what you alan you went back into helping other people you started working with the uh, law office of aaron brockovich 
and uh, started doing some work for them uh, and, and help people who were in need. And those stories, we talked earlier about the football coach, Dan, uh, but other stories about the postal worker who just gets doused twice uh, by by uh, pesticide, herbicide, pesticide plane flying over twice, and and her life was over. Uh, it was just really sad. I mean, some of the stories are just so saddening. And uh, but my goodness, you have had so much to do with people, and I think you continue to do all that. That's right. Um, you know, when you when you when you see the light, and you 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 begin to see what's that this is going on all around us. And you, you know, there's no families that are untouched. Every single family yeah. that you know of is going to get cancer. There's going to be somebody in that family that's going to get cancer or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or asthma or allergies. And the list goes on and on and on. And all chronic disease and premature death uh, isn't, you know, it's either a combination of the genes that you're born with and the environment that you're exposed to. That's it. Yeah. You know, for example, um, according to the um, National Institutes of Health, which is our federal government, eight out of every ten cases of cancer is caused by the environment that you're exposed to yeah. in your home, your school, your workplace, and your community. That's huge. Yes. That is enormous. Yes. And if you think you'll, you're safe if you go indoors, think again. Yeah. Because the EPA says that... Um, 75 million Americans become ill each year because of the sick buildings that, that we're working in. Yes. So whether it's outdoor pollution, indoor pollution, I mean, it, it, it's all around us. Um, but, but, the, but, but the good news is, is that you can modify your lifestyle and minimize your risk and protect yourself and your family. For example, you spend two-thirds or a third of your life sleeping on a bed in your bedroom. Yes. Well, you could totally retrofit your bedroom to have a safe environment where you're sleeping on a safe mattress, you're in a, a safe bedroom, where you're going to get, you know, safe environment one-third of your life just by, just by modifying the bedroom that you're sleeping in every day. Yes. So this is not a doom or gloom thing. This is something that's entirely preventable. And the way you prevent yourself and your family from becoming another statistic is, is as you arm yourself with knowledge so you can modify your lifestyle and minimize your risk. Yes. Now listen, Bozeman, Montana, you would think is got the cleanest, you know, some of the cleanest air in the United States. Yeah. And according to all your viewers may be thinking, well, this is all good stuff, but it doesn't affect me and my family, so I'm not interested in this radio show, and I'm not interested in going to a health food store and buying healthy things. But let me tell you something. Yes, by many estimates, Bozeman has the cleanest air in the country. However, did you know, also know that just 80 miles away from you guys, the place called, is that how you pronounce it? Butte. But? Butte. 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 Okay. Yeah. Butte, only 80 miles away from you, yeah. is the largest Superfund site in the United States of America. Yeah. It's and a, it's an open pit, the Berkeley pit. Berkeley pit. The Berkeley pit is Na the named, largest. Named after Berkeley, California, I think. No, no, I'm just okay. kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't know. So, so the, here's, a, here's another example. 
of a company that, uh, for greed purposes, wanted to mine pristine land there and take minerals such as copper and make a lot of money off of it. Yep. Well, from the early 1950s, when the mine was opened up until 1982, when it was shut down by the federal government, arsenic and other toxic minerals have been spewed all over the environment there. And they say that by the year 2023, which is only five years from now, the the levels of this stuff is going to peak. And if they don't do anything about it within the next five years, it's going to seep into your groundwater. And all of you drinking that pure water over there in Bozeman, Idaho, are going to be drinking water laced with toxins. Yes. That's, so, that's a great point. And, you know, there is an organization now starting up to really start to clean up this pit. This last year, all of a sudden, migrating birds, uh, there was maybe a 1,000, maybe even more than 3, that. 3,000. 3,000. They landed on there and were killed instantaneously. That's right. 3,000 birds. Oh, people were so upset they were, about They it. were geese, actually. Geese, geese. yes, yes. Oh, That's that, right. Yeah, unreal. Now, unreal. now if it's going to do that to 3,000 geese, what do you think it's going to do to your babies, to yes. your elderly people that are living there? Yes. yes. What do you think it's going to do? Yeah. What do you think it's going to do? So, so the point is, is that nobody is immune. Even if you're in Bozeman, Montana, yeah. nobody is immune. Yeah. You're and right. there's things that you all can do in your local community. In your local, in your own home, and in your own school, and in your own workplaces, to prevent yourselves and your families from becoming another statistic. And in my book, I list the top, the ten most toxic chemicals to avoid, and the twenty top ways to modify your lifestyle and minimize your risk. Yes, and we'll definitely we'll talk about it. I want to see if I can get my caller on for just a minute before we go to the break. Good morning, caller. What's your name? How can we help you? Hey, this is Scott Jacobus. How hey, are Scott, you? Hey, Scott. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah. Hey, I think uh, I think he's right, and you're right. I think greed. The large percentage of it is greed. I think there's a pretty, pretty, you know, a small percentage of it is ignorance on the on the part of these, you know, these companies. And then there's a pretty good percentage of it that's actually criminal, because once you find out what's going on and you don't do anything about it, or you hide it, or you continue to do what you're doing as a corporation, that in my mind becomes criminal. And I think that that greed is probably the, the the biggest, you know, the biggest percentage of what's going on. You only have to look at, you know, you look at the Japanese whalers years ago. If the community of, you know, if the world community didn't stop them from whaling, they'd have no whales. They'd wake up one day and say, "Wow, there's no more whales. What happened?" Right. Well, you killed them. You, you killed them all. And then you look at the poachers in Africa. You know, they're killing yes. off all the elephants and the rhinos, and they're going to wake up one day and they're all going to be gone. Because of greed, you know, mankind is such a short-sighted, short-sighted creature. You know, we don't, we don't think for the most, we don't think long-term, we think short-term. Yes. You're you're so right, Scott. And this whole environmental movement was, you know, really focused on saving the, saving the whales and the birds and the trees and the ice caps. Yes. But, but if you boil it down to its most basic common denominator, yes. it's really about saving you and me. Yeah. It's really about saving the humans. Yeah. We're going to take a break again, Alan, the last break. We're going to be right back. 
you di- you didn't mention in the book what kind of mask you were wearing. Well, the oxygen mask was made out of like a ceramic kind of a mask, and the the tube going to the tank was stainless steel. That's unreal. Yeah, I constantly visualize you with this one of those plastic masks with uh, some tubes coming out. <laughs> no, the plastic caused me to have seizures, unfortunately. And it would be one of those masks that goes over the top of your nose and then comes under your eyes and under your chin. Exactly. It covered your whole face, a wow. ceramic mask. So how was it for you to fly in airplanes with a mask like that? Well, I couldn't fly in airplanes back then, but... When I rarely did, when I was going to different doctors, yeah. they would supply oxygen on the airplane, yeah. and I would take the ceramic mask with me as a carry-on with the stainless steel tubing and just connect it to the tank. And I would sit in the, you know, in the, in the seat, but I would take one of these covers and put it on the seat so I wasn't sitting on a, a seat that had fabric on it oh my with goodness. people's other people's colognes and perfumes on the residue on the seat. So wow. I would put, get my own seat cover and put it on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, yeah. you know, I was wondering too, when you read the book, you're just into it. I mean, as a reader, I'm into it. And then when I come more towards the end, I realize you have found something that started to help you to be able to move around. That's about 20 years ago. That was 1998. But you told me on the phone earlier this week that your system is still weak. You're still not, definitely not 100% where you used to be, but you're able to move around. And what was that change for you? Well, they did a scan of my brain, and they found out that I had brain injury. And the doctors felt that a lot of the symptoms that I was experiencing from the chemical exposure damaged my brain. And this doctor that I saw in Dallas, Texas, had treated hundreds of Gulf War veterans with the same problem that you and I discussed earlier on on the radio show today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he put them on this new anti-seizure medicine back then. It was new. It was called Neurontin, which now is generic called gabapentin, which basically is a synthetic amino acid that acts as a Band-Aid on the neurons in your brain to quell seizure activity. So he gave me that, and lo and behold, it reduced a lot of the symptoms that I had. But it's basically just a Band-Aid. It has not gotten at the root of the issue. It has not gotten at the root of the problems that I have. And I've been on this medication for the last 20 years. So if I stop it, the symptoms come roaring back wow. with the same intensity as they were wow. 20 years ago. Do and you have to refill that prescription every month, or is it something that they give you a year supply? How does it work? I think they give it every 90 days. 90 every days. 90 days. Oh, boy. Yeah. That is, yeah. You run out of that. That was really a problem. It's really a problem. But, but I have a, you know, an extra supply in case that happens. Yeah. Now, when, <laughs> but it's not a solution. It's just a Band-Aid. And I realize and, that. And I really think the solution is more natural. It's more holistic. And it's not just that medicine that I take that keeps me stable. It's also I do detoxification every day in one form or another in terms of sweating. Yeah. I either do a sauna every yeah. day where yeah. I sweat. And as you know, the skin is the largest eliminative organ in your body. Is that an infrared? Is it infrared sauna? 
actually, no, it's not. But oh. it acts like infrared, far okay. infrared, because when you heat up all the walls, the ceramic walls, which I have, and the heat comes echoing back from the walls themselves, it does have the same effect as a far infrared sauna. It's basically the same thing. So I sauna every day or every other day, and the days that I don't sauna, I'm in a dead sea salt bath, hot dead sea salts, which extract toxins out through your skin. And sometimes I do coffee enemas, which are really good too. Yeah, for the liver, yes. Right, and high levels of vitamin C every day. Yeah, what is high for you? Well, it could go as high as 10 or as low as 4 grams a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not milligrams, but grams. Yeah, right. 10,000 right. milligrams. Yeah, it's pretty good. As long as it doesn't give you diarrhea, right? Then it's, uh, you should no. be good. Yeah. So that's uh, you can find out what your load is until you hit that spot. Right. Uh, I have so many more questions for you, but I think uh, Scott called us back. Is that right, Scott? Good morning. This is Vinny again. Oh, Vinny. Okay. I saw a <laughs> Livingston number. Thanks, Vinny. Hey, uh, okay, I got two important points, and I don't want to take up the whole show, but I used to run the lead poisoning program for the state of Montana. I was in charge of data collection for the CDC, five-year grant. We did childhood-level blood sampling, first in the Butte area, and then statewide. We gathered a, a baseline database for environmental toxins. Long story short, the Butte area does not have elevated lead or arsenic in the general area. Really? Yeah, there were more people poisoned by old paint in houses in That's Europe. right. Yeah. But, but, it, but within five that. years, if you don't reverse the water situation, it's going to permeate your water supply, your groundwater, and then all hell is going to break loose. Well, that was a conspiracy of greed because they shut the pumps off. It would have been so easy for them to keep those underground pumps going but they wanted to save a little money, so they decided to abandon it, allow it to fill up, and allow all that water to become exposed to the metals, uh, all the metals that they were getting. It's the richest hill on earth, wow. and so they caused that problem through. That was a conspiracy of greed. Wow. But here's the most interesting point. East Helena has a lead smelter, and we were allowed to go statewide and do blood level testing. We had a van that we took around the state and gathered childhood blood samples. And I've seen the secret data. I've seen, I've seen the CDC database, and they were monitoring for a lot of other things besides lead. Huh. And we were not allowed to go into East Helena where there was a lead smelter. That was corporately forbidden. Wow. They had some kind of unbreakable agreement with the corporations that actually make lead. And that lead smelter area was off limits to us. Huh. It was crazy. But anyway, have you looked into stem cell, umbilical stem cell therapy, Dr. Neil Rurden down in Panama? I know you can't, tra I assume you can't travel, but I would strongly suggest that you look into umbilical stem cell therapy. What's his name? Dr. Neil Rurden. Or how, do you, clinic how do you spell his last name? R-I-O-R-D-E-A-N. R-O-I-R-I-O-R-I-O-R-D-A-N. D-A-N. Neil, is it N-E-I-L? Yes. A real quick summation of what he's doing. You can go to the Joe Rogan podcast of about, just type in Joe Rogan, Mel Gibson, Neil Rorden, and they did a short summation of what's going on down there with umbilical stem cells, which is totally illegal in the United States other than on an experimental uh 
trial basis for a few neurological diseases, uh, ironically. Yeah. But they're having tremendous results down there with umbilical stem cells. If I could give any, everybody one bit of advice, I would say, if you have a child, save your umbilical cord, oh, yeah. placenta, and have them frozen. This is going to be the key in the future. Wow. Thanks, Vinny. Are you spelling right. it okay. R I O R D I N D A N D A N? Yes. D-A-N. But just go to go to just Google up Joe Rogan, uh, Mel Gibson, and you'll get the show where they, the guy explains his stuff. Okay, that'll be the quickest way to, to Google it up. All right. Well, thanks for that information. Right. Good stuff. Thanks, Vinny. All right, man. Bye bye. All right. Interesting, Alan. Uh, I do know somebody in, in town who was suffering from MS and who ended up going, they collected her own stem cells in Israel, and then they did complete chemotherapy on her to kind of take her immune system to absolute zero. They do it for one or two days, and then they reinfuse her own stem cells. They start regrowing, and she is, does not have any more MS. Uh, so that's another uh, way working with stem cells, and that would be your own stem cells. So they, they take your own stem cells, they filter them through to make them clean, and then they go from there. So that's an interesting one that could actually reset your whole immune system. Interesting. Yeah. It is too bad that I mentioned in the first hour uh, before you came on that the problem that I see with medicine today it is very archaic it's very slow before new right. therapies are approved and then before they will change the medical books and they, they realize that if they start working with these therapies that have been proven to work in other countries or continent that it would be a big dent into the big pharma industry because it may put some of the medications out of business and and even though you are doing now the gabapentin or the Neurontin, uh, that is obviously medication that is able for you to be to function. So uh, there is always value in medication, but the problem is for how long? For how long should somebody be on something? And like you mentioned earlier, that probably the overexposure of antibiotics may have had an effect on your overall immune system that all of a sudden got inundated by certain chemicals and that create a poison for you. Right. You know, I was going to ask you, Alan, uh, since you are doing lectures and you you, I see you lecturing in bookstores where you're surrounded by all these old books and print and you have people (laughs) sitting in front of you with perfumes and, uh, you know, they have aftershave. How are you handling that? Well, for a short period of time, I, I handle it. I take hits, you know, I, I feel it while it's happening. Yeah. I just deal with it and, and get out of there, basically. Yeah. It's <laughs> you know. funny. That is yeah. funny. Oh, boy. But, you know, it's so interesting. You, you, you went to this one lady and you went to her house and... As you're talking with her, you are. she says, I just don't know. I think it is her daughter who's sick, or, or maybe she passed away. I forget which one it was. And you said, well, there's mold in your house. And she said, well, how do you know? And you said, well, I can smell it. And, and then you actually walk up to the wall where the mold is behind the wall. 
And then, exactly. then you had, an, again, because of your amazing network that you have created, you contacted this environmental hygienist who ended up coming in with his whole kit and in his black white suit with mask and everything. And he started taking things apart and he found indeed all this black mold. And then it was not just in her apartment, but it was in all the apartments. And so many people have been hurt and it happens so many times, and you mentioned indeed because of the drywall, the material that the drywall is made of, if that gets wet, it is a perfect environment for mold to grow, the black mold specifically. And I see over here too, in Bozeman, even though we have a dry climate, but they're building and they're building and they're building. And sometimes the building is there and it is exposed to the outside and we have a big rainstorm or we have snow and you cannot tell me that something is not brewing on the inside once the once the windows are in and once the walls are sealed. That's right, and especially if you have internal leaks, like in your pipes, where you're getting small, sustained, long-term leaks in the pipes. Yeah, uh, the drywall basically is food for the mold. Drywall is basically made from trees. It's made from plants. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's a perfect food for mold. So. You know, if the mold has food, which is the drywall, and then you give it water, which is what it needs, which would be a leak in a pipe, there you have it. It proliferates. Yes. Yeah, totally. Uh, Would you mind going through some of these uh, toxins that we are being exposed to that people don't think about? I know in one of the clips... I saw on your website, you're on TV, and you have a table, big table in front of you with all these household cleaners. Mm-hmm. And, and this is, by the way, a thing that you have fought for very hard, that the labels are now going to write exactly what is, on, what is in the product. So if you use a product such as Comet, you will actually know what are all the toxins, possible toxins for you in that product. And, and you can make an, a consumer decision if you want to support that or not. Right. You know, up until now, there's never been a legal requirement to put the ingredients on bottles, what's in these home cleaning products. So you'd go to a store, you'd buy, you know, you'd buy Comet or you'd buy Windex or whatever, and look at the ingredients and there's nothing on there because they didn't have to put it on there. But California now, for the first state in the country, has made this a requirement where you need to label the ingredients. So you could make an informed decision as a consumer, just like when you're buying food. You know, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, makes a requirement that all ingredients of foods need to be placed on the label. Now they've extended that to home cleaning products as well. So you could compare side-by-side different home cleaning products and pick ones that are less toxic than others. I see. Well, I, you know, they say that the food labels are all clear, which... They definitely have improved, but when you see something on a label that says natural flavors, what exactly <laughs> are they talking about? Right, right, right. And, and they've got these laws that they're hiding behind that puts all kinds of different toxic chemicals under the umbrella of natural ingredients. And look, arsenic is natural too, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. So, so you, the arsenic could be there, and uh, it's considered a, natu- a natural ingredient. Mold is mold is natural. It grows in the environment. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a natural ingredient. So, yeah. And and how did that law come to be? It came to be because these big, powerful chemical companies lobby Congress to keep the laws like this, 
so they could market their products, you know, under the radar screen as being natural when they're not. Yeah, I see. So it all goes back to, you know, this corporate greed and keeping the laws just the way they are. And the laws basically are chemicals are presumed innocent until proven guilty. And the laws are that you do, do not need to label ingredients on these products. So consumers are operating blindly when they walk into a grocery store. That's why it's important. You know, there are ethical companies like 7th Generation and a lot of these other products that you sell in your Gesundheit health food store where all the ingredients are labeled on there. Yes. You could walk into those stores like yours and a consumer could pick up a bottle of a home cleaning product and actually look at the ingredients on there yes. and make an informed decision. Yes. Uh, are you able to go into health food stores yourself? Yeah, I go to... Whole Foods, I go to Sprouts, yeah, so I, what I go if, food shopping. What if they sell essential oils there? How are you dealing with that? Well, I just, you know, they also, I mean, I can go in regular supermarkets too, like you know, conventional supermarkets where they sell Tide and Bounce and other <laughs> toxic ingredients. Yeah. I just don't go down those aisles, that's all. <laughs> really? You can tell even through the packaging? You, you Oh, it, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. You could blindfold me, put earmuffs on me, and I could tell you when you're about a, an aisle away from those sections of the store where they're selling Logic detergents. I could smell it. My goodness. Yeah. Huh. And, and many normal people can too. Let me tell you, I'm not alone. Yeah. I mean, my child could smell it. My friends could smell it. If you clean your environment up where you don't have all this background noise of continually being exposed to these toxins and you, you live a very clean environment and then you go back into that, you can pick it up right away. Wow. We're coming close to the end of the show. I have one more caller. Let's see if we can get you on. Good morning, caller. What's your name? How can we help you? Jerry Gregoire. Hello, Jerry. How are you? Good. Thank Hi, you Jerry. so much. Very, very interesting talk. I have a question for clarification. Drywall or sheetrock is completely made from gypsum. So with the exception of the paper, Jerry just explained a little bit more when he made the comment that it was made out of tree material. Thanks, that's all. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much. Yeah, drywall is basically made from trees. You know, it's basically shredded up wood, cellulose from wood, wood products. So basically, you know, any kind of paper products, where do you, where do you, where do you think paper comes from? From a tree. Paper, paper yeah. comes from plants and yes. trees. Yes, absolutely. That's what it is. And, and that's what drywall is. Yeah. That's why old books smell musty. Because they're made out of paper, which is basically plants, plant, plant products. So paper, when, it, when when old magazines get musty, you can throw them away. But unfortunately, drywall, <laughs> you can't throw away. No, you're and right. It, so Good it's made point. from plants and wood. Well, Alan, we're come to the end of the show. The music is playing. I thank you so much for being here, and I hope you come back because I really would like to talk with you about all the work you're doing with your Environmental Health Foundation, which advocates for victims of environmental injury. And there is probably so much to say, and the story will go on. But I, first of all, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Jacobus. You're doing a great job for your community and your fellow citizens well, in Bozeman, Montana. Well, I appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Folks, we'll be back next week. See you then.